My name is Justin Crow, one of the pastors here at Mission Church, and I get the privilege to preach at times, and today's one of those days. Uh, I'm glad all of you are back. There's more people in like this small section right here than there were last week, so welcome back to all the tan world travelers that I see. Thank you guys for being here this morning. It was great being with family last week, though. It honestly was, and it's great being with even more family here today. So, last week I said ministry can be lonely, and that's when all the staff of Hope House leave me by myself, and all the staff of Mission Church leave. That's what I mean. I was lonely last week, so I'm glad everyone is back. This week, though, we will continue through 2 Timothy. We're going to finish it up. Uh, We're finishing another book here at Mission Church. We're just flying through these things, I tell you what. I mean, we've gotten like... In eight years, like four of them. Anyway, um, whatever. To help recap from last week, though, we see Paul is lonely. He's basically begging people to come see him, Timothy being the one he is begging. But I think it sounds like he'd take almost anybody. But he's begging Timothy, please come see me. And he mentions this again in verse 21. Please come visit me even before winter time. You see, the main catalyst for this loneliness he names is Demas, a faithful friend and colleague in the past, has deserted him because he was in love with this present world. Last week, that's as far as we got. We looked at the phrase, in love with this present world, in detail. We focused that inwardly, asking the question of ourselves, not trying to determine who are the Demases in our lives, but are we a Demas ourselves? Are we... Or are we in danger of becoming in love with the present world? This is a question I believe we should ask ourselves regularly, not just when we come to it in this text, but regularly assessing ourselves. Am I more in love with the world than I am with Jesus? This week will be a little bit different simply because I think the text, as we just read, dictates that it is different. So, like the good seminary graduate that I am, Instead of three points today, we're going to have five points. We're going to have five key takeaways that we can get from this text. And I actually think there are more, even though it's a little bit choppy, even though the text kind of jumps around a little bit from this guy to this guy and from bring me my books and bring me my coat and all of these things. It's not necessarily one singular thought. However, I do think, again, there are five key takeaways that we need or it wouldn't be here. This text, would, it would cut off earlier if all of these words were not necessary. So, let's get started. The first key takeaway, if you're taking notes, this would be the first thing you would write down, is reconciliation. As Christians, we must be people of reconciliation. Raise your hand if you have ever needed to reconcile with someone. Everyone in here. Whether it be a small issue or a big issue, there have been times where you have needed to reconcile, come to terms with your differences, agree to disagree, whatever you want to phrase that, but you needed reconciliation. And as Christians, we must starkly stand out from the culture in this area because the culture has forgotten how we do this or how to do this. We must show them through Christ how it is done because in culture now, it's you've wronged me, let's just never speak again. Or we don't have to work that out because why should we work that out? The world around us has forgotten the art of reconciliation and forgiveness. And as Christians, we simply cannot be that way. Now, where do we see that in today's passage? 
I'm already going gonna, gonna to ask a question I already know the answer to, so I won't ask you to raise your hands on this one. But anyone ever taken something out on someone that was really this person's fault, but this person bore the brunt of it? If you're married in this room and you're not nodding, you are lying. You treat me like you're, like you're my mother. You, you can't talk to me that way. That's how so-and-so used to talk to me, and I won't have, I won't have it, Right? Many other examples I can give. Those are just from my marriage. I'm just kidding. We all, we all do this. We get reminded about something that happened in the past. We carry it out on someone else that didn't really even do anything. We hold that grudge. We hold it against them. But someone that doesn't deserve it kind of carries the weight of it. The reason I bring that up is Paul could have easily done this. See, Demas has deserted him, not left him to go do ministry, not left him as friends, deserted him. This is not the first rodeo for Paul. It's not the second rodeo for Paul. It's not the third rodeo for Paul. If you read his writings, numerous times people have left him. Some good reasons, but other times he, he mentions, no, these guys left for, for non-godly reasons, non-spiritual reasons. If you would, if you have a Bible or a device, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 36 through 40. And kind of draw from that. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36, says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. See, the ESV says withdrawn there in verse 38. Every other version I looked at says deserted. Where have we heard that word before? We have just read how Demas deserted Paul. This is not the first time Paul's been deserted or Paul has been, his, someone has turned their back on Paul. Now we don't have the reasoning as to why the, the actual event where Mark left took place in Acts 13. It does not specifically say in Acts 13 it says that Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know if it was because it got too hard or it got too difficult for Mark or he just didn't like Paul or he didn't want to go to that place. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem to do mission work. We don't have any of those details, but what we can surmise is that Paul deemed the reason inexcusable or he would not have reacted this way in Acts chapter 15. Barnabas wanted Mark to accompany them, and Paul said, I don't think that's a good idea because of what he has done previously. Now, why am I bringing this up? Is it because Paul may be holding what Mark did against Demas and overstating what Demas did? I don't think so because Paul gives a specific reason for Demas. Demas is in love with this present world. That has become obvious. That's why he's left. Hopefully he comes back. We don't have that in the text. But you see in Paul's writings, bring, I hope he comes back. But right now, Demas has left me because he is in love with the present world. Now look at who Paul wants Timothy to bring back with him, though. It says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. 
the deserter that caused a major rift in Paul and Barnabas' relationship so that they split ways previously in his life, bring him. He is useful to me in ministry. And Paul says that Mark's really funny or Mark might get him out of jail or what does he say? He's useful to me in ministry. The very thing Mark deserted him over previously. He is useful to me in ministry. This is a good word for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. Our lives matter now. Do they matter eternally? Yes. But if your salvation was meant just for your eternal happiness, God would save you and kill you in the same moment. And that's how it would work every time. Or he would wait to the last minute of your life and then save you at that moment, which I'm not saying he does not do, but that would be his M.O. But he wants our lives to matter now. Our living for Christ has effects on our lives, but also the lives around us. And that's whether you like them to or not. They are going to have effects. How you live out this Christian faith, how you live out this Christian life is going to have effects on you and your families, your friends, people that are close to you, people that are just watching you that you don't even know are watching you. See, Paul, we would all agree, has made a huge difference in the world. We can read all of his writings, or at least all the ones we have in God's word, and see they have clearly made a difference in the world. But he is saying that Mark made a big difference to him. This implies that Paul may or may not have had the same effectiveness had Mark not been a part of his life. Mark is very useful to me in ministry. I have a huge ministry. I don't know if Paul realized, obviously, exactly how huge his ministry would become in 2019. But I have this huge ministry. Bring me this one guy. Mark is very useful to me. Too many of us will minimize our effectiveness or even our ability to have effectiveness. Now, part of me thinks that's just we want to make excuses, right? We're lazy or we don't really want to engage in what God is calling us to, so we call it humility and say, well, I'm not really equipped for that. Yeah, you are. Just go do it and stop making excuses. But we do this on past failures or past attempts. What if the Old Testament prophets had been like, well, I tried. <laughs> I, I preached the gospel. I preached the, the good news of, of God to these people, and they didn't exactly take it, so I'm out. I don't know where we would have ended up come New Testament time. What if Paul had given up? What if the, the 12 had given up? Because, you know, they had just major success everywhere they went. Everybody was like, yeah, we love Jesus too. Thanks. Yeah, it's great. Here we sit thousands of miles away, thousands of years away from when they proclaimed the gospel, worshiping the exact same man. Not because they didn't fail, though. They were useful in ministry. They persevered. And each one of us, while we may not be one of the 12 and we may not be famous Thousands of years from now, we are useful in God's ministry or he would not have saved you. We were at the beach a couple weeks ago, like many of you were this past week. I had many conversations with Nora. I just want to get her to repeat things so that she hears herself say them all the time. So why did God make the sunset, Nora? For God's glory. Why did God make the beach, Nora? For God's glory. She was like, hey, can I watch Ice Age? Why did God make Ice Age, Nora? For God's glory. I'm assuming that's true also, but... We just, want, we just want her to say for God's glory over and over so that she knows every last fiber of this universe is made for that reason. Got me to thinking, though, 
How many grains of salt are in the ocean? I mean, I, I don't know, but it's a lot. And Judah tried to drink them all while we were there. He, he would get his little sleeve wet and then suck them out. And I was like, yeah, it's gross. Don't do that anymore. But anyway, if you remove one grain of salt from the ocean, anybody notice? Does it become less salty? Does it, does it matter? Does it make a difference? Because the easy answer we're thinking is no, it wouldn't make a difference. Who would notice? But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, the answer has to be yes, it would make a difference. Otherwise, why did God put that grain of sand there or salt there? Or of sand on the beach. Why is that exact grain of sand there? Because if you believe in the sovereignty of God, that specific grain of salt in the ocean was created, maintained, and placed right where it is for the specific purpose of glorifying the God who made it. How much more then are you placed when and where you are for God's glory in ministry if a grain of salt glorifies the God who made it in the ocean somewhere out in the middle of nowhere? How much more are you not needed, but how much more has God sovereignly placed you where you are with the people you are with, with the family that you have, with the friends that you have, with the non-believers that surround you and don't surround other people? The circles you have been placed in is sovereignly placed there by God. Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Does this mean we are just robots or puppets? No. This means that when God sets your will free, he makes you want to do those things. Your desire is set free from the slavery we have placed ourselves in through sin to want to do the works that he has already sovereignly placed in your path to walk in. This also means, if we are walking with Jesus, that you will do them, you will accomplish them, you will have success based on God's version of success because God is the one doing them. And then when that happens, God receives all, not some, not most, all the glory for even the works that you walk in, that you do. How can you possibly be mad at that? Even if you were a robot, which I'm not saying you are, but you are a robot that glorifies God in the works that he sovereignly has you doing, how can you be mad at that? It's glorifying the God who deserves to be glorified. Mark, the man that Paul basically said, if he's going, I ain't going. This guy is now useful to Paul in the very thing that Mark left him high and dry in, in ministry. Do you not see the reconciliation here? Just like that grain of salt, we are sovereignly placed where we are to glorify God, so do not shy away from that simply because you are afraid or lazy or you don't think God can use you, or I don't have all the answers, or you name the excuse that we've all used at different times in our lives. Mark could have easily said, when he heard Paul wanted him to come, yeah, but I failed him that one time. Or how could he really, how could he really use me now because I left him that other time? Quite obviously, that was not his reaction. We do not know how it happened as clear Paul and Mark have reconciled or Paul would not be asking for him to come. 
You see, Paul must believe the words found in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, which he wrote them, I hope he believes them, but all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that he might become the righteousness of God. This is why reconciliation is important. Not only does it place us back in the will of the Father so that we become useful vessels in his grand plan, says that he is making his appeal through us. God could do it any number of ways. He could do it however he wanted to do it, but he chose to do it through us so we, we can be placed through reconciliation with others, be placed back in his will to carry out the works he has for us to do. But it also preaches the gospel when we do it. Because the only reason we are doing it is because of the gospel. The only reason we are reconciling, the only reason we want to reconcile with people that have wronged us or people we have wronged is because of Jesus. Because the message that he has sent us with, that's part of it. Paul wrote these words, but he also clearly believes them enough to live them. And not just live them because they have a better life. I get along with more people if I can just find a way to agree to disagree. It's nothing like that. It's because it preaches the gospel to the world around him. It shows that we are not the same as the world. It preaches the gospel of reconciliation with God when we live this out amongst ourselves, amongst each other. When we reconcile, when we don't really want to, when the world would tell us you don't have to, when we do it in the name of Jesus, it preaches a better message. It preaches the gospel. We must be people of reconciliation. We must be ambassadors for the sake of his name, the sake of his message, for the sake of the gospel, we must be willing to rebuild for the sake of Jesus the bridges that sin has burned. If not, the rest of our message will fall on deaf ears. People are just going to see, well, you act just like I do when I'm wronged. So apparently, God acts that way too. I don't really want a part of that. We must make sure that we are not demises. That's what we talked about last week. But just as importantly, we must make sure that when the demises in our own lives repent and become the marks in our lives, we no longer treat them like demons, we embrace them like Mark. Because, not again, not just so interpersonally we have a better life, but because God treated Jesus like Demas so he could treat us like Mark. Does that make sense? This is why reconciliation is important. Because it preaches the gospel. Now, do we have to preach the gospel with our words? Absolutely. You're always going to hear us say that. But one way you can do that is when people go, hey, why are you still friends with that guy? Or why did you reconcile with that guy? Jesus, let me tell you about him. So then we are able to verbally, but if we don't reconcile, guess what? People aren't going to ask that question. Because people are just going to go, yep, that's about how it goes. That's how the world does reconciliation. They just let it go. Second key takeaway, continued discipleship. This is verse 13. We have said this a few times. Paul knew he was going to die. It's not a surprise to him. He knew he was not getting out of that prison. 
just a few weeks ago, Pastor Todd preached, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Paul's not saying, I'll finish it later. I got plenty of time. No, no, he know I am poured out as a drink offering. I know my time has come. I don't know if it's today. I don't know if it's tomorrow, but it's not a long time from now. My time is ticking. It's not Paul quitting. It's just he knows the truth. But he also knows what he wrote in Philippians. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. It's, like, it's not Paul being suicidal here. This is Paul just saying, you know what? Should I just kind of let them kill me? Or should I fight for another day? I don't, I don't know. I am hard pressed between the two. Do I want to die now because I get to see Jesus? Or do I want to live because I've got more work he wants me to do? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Even in his life-death struggle here, he's pointing to Jesus. If I live another day, another year, another 15 years, it's all about Jesus. It is to cause you to glory in Christ Jesus. How does this apply to today? Paul knows he is done for, barring a, a miracle. And yet, what does he ask Timothy to bring? Books and parchments. He could have just said, I've learned about all I can learn. I don't have a whole lot of time left. What good is it for me to learn anything else? I don't know what was written in the books. I don't know what, I, I don't know. Uh, one could surmise it's probably not The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings because he definitely didn't have time to read those. So it's something spiritually connected. It's something he wants to learn. Timothy in Ephesus, I googled this, just in case everybody knows. 830 mile flight from Rome to Ephesus. Clearly they didn't have planes back then. So I don't know how far it was for Timothy to walk it or ride a horse or a camel or whatever he was doing. Needless to say, it was going to take a while for Paul's letter to travel that distance to Timothy, and then Timothy to go, okay, i got to get my things in order, and then go back. So Paul, in limited time, and it's even more limited by the fact that he's 830 miles away, is still saying, bring me my books, and my coat, by the way, which we won't go into, but Troas was at least on the way from Ephesus. So I had to Google that too, but it wasn't like he was asking Timothy to go out of his way for a coat. That would have been... But this serves as an encouragement or maybe even a command for us that discipleship is never over. I don't care how old or young you are in this room, discipleship is a lifelong pursuit. No matter how long you live, whether that's today or 50 more years, 100 more years, continue pursuing after Christ to know him more, to love him more, to worship him more because he is worth it. We said salvation last week. That salvation was not a one-time event, but a lifetime of allegiance to Christ. This is what that looks like. He has limited time, and he wants to know the Jesus he worships more. We must never become complacent, never think we know enough, never think we've come to the end of our knowledge of Jesus. That's not going to happen even in eternity. But continue pursuing after this. You never retire from the ministry of the word, even if you retire from your job. Third takeaway. It's what we're doing right now, Christian fellowship. Where do we see this? Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. 
Verse 11, Luke is still with me, bring Mark. Verse 21, do your best to come to me before winter because I want to see you and you're bringing me my coat and it's going to be cold. But Paul longed to be with his friends and there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with saying, I want to be with my Christian friends. They encourage me. They push me. Is Paul saying Jesus is not enough on his own? No. And we'll see that shortly. Jesus is enough by himself and him alone. Jesus is enough. However, we are never instructed in Scripture not one time to be standalone, solitary Christians that are just in these silos hanging out by ourselves. Jesus being enough and Jesus being the true and better best friend to all of us is never meant to replace earthly relationships but simply enhance them, deepen them in Christ. Now if they become replacements, yes, we have a problem. But if they are deepened by the fact that we don't have a whole lot in common, but we got Jesus in common, that's the, the key. Paul is longing for friendship. And this is after a time when someone he thought was his friend had just deserted him. And after many people that he thought were his friends had deserted him. And these were so-called Christian friends, right? Yet he didn't throw out the whole idea of Christ-centered friendship. He didn't say, well, they wronged me, so I'm not going to trust any of y'all anymore either. And yes, he used y'all back then. He did not judge the true and eternal friend off of the followers of that friend. How many times have you heard, well, man, I used to go to church with those hypocrites, or I was wronged by this so-called Christian, so I just, I threw the baby, threw the baby Jesus out with the bathwater? I don't, threw the baby out with the bathwater, like, threw, I threw the whole idea of religion, the whole idea of faith, the whole idea of spirituality, because these few people have wronged me, and they claim to be Christians. I'm not even saying these people aren't Christians, I'm not saying they are, either way, bad reaction. Throwing the whole idea out because of the followers of Jesus is the wrong reaction. Jesus is enough when those times arrive, arise, arrive, both. When your Christian friends wrong you, Jesus is enough. Then we go reconcile, or at least attempt to reconcile. Earthly friends can never be enough on their own. Only Jesus is the true, eternal, never-failing, totally reliable friend. But he himself who is who makes friendship possibly eternal. I'm going to spend eternity with some of the people, hopefully all of the people in this room. We will be friends in heaven. I fully believe that. Jesus is what makes that possible. Our friendship is not what makes that possible. Our friendship is enhanced by the possibility that it is possible. See, the Christian life is, it's difficult, but it's relationally difficult so many times. Do not let those strained relationships cause you to shy away from fellowship. Do not become untrusting of everyone just because you can't trust a certain person or a certain group of people. Again, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Even good people are great at making bad decisions. But never let the failings of earthly friends cause you not to see Jesus as your only eternal faithful friend. In other words, focus on Jesus. Don't focus on Demas. There will be lots of Demases in your world. Lots. There's one Jesus. Focus on him. Which leads us right into takeaway number four. We're flying through these. Forgiveness. Now this one goes with reconciliation. It's intertwined. They go hand in hand. You can't really separate them completely. But there are two different ideas. 
In the same way, we must be willing to reconcile to our brothers and sisters, whether we have wronged them or been wronged, we must be also willing to forgive them when they have wronged us. By my count, if you don't count Timothy, Demas, or Alexander, there are 14 other names listed in this text. It starts with, in verse 10 with Crescens. And it also, in verse 21, says, and all the brothers. We don't even know how many that is, but it's a numerous amount of people. But 14 separate names. All of them he mentions positively. That's why I eliminated Timothy's, the person receiving the letter. Alexander and Demas were not named positively. 14 names he mentions in a positive light. He's either sending greetings from them or to them. He's telling them what they're doing in their ministries. He's giving people updates. This guy I sent here, man, he's doing awesome things. He's going to plant a church in Dalmatia, da 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 All 14, 14 of them seem to be friends in some way. Now look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted, there's that word again, all deserted me. In other words, where were all of these people Paul just listed? Now, some of them maybe couldn't be there. It's 834 miles away. Maybe they just couldn't make the distance. Maybe they were doing ministry, and that was more important than just standing next to Paul at trial. But all the brothers, because we don't know how many that is, it seems to imply at least some of them could have been there, or Paul wouldn't have brought it up. If it was all, yeah, no, they had perfectly valid excuses. They couldn't make it. I don't think Paul brings this up. He is saying the same thing that happened to Jesus on the cross. Where were all these people? Somewhere else. We don't know where they all were, but they were somewhere else. But look what Paul says and listen to how it mirrors Jesus on the cross as well. May it not be charged against them. Now, is he telling Timothy that? Yes. But is he praying that to God? Probably. May it not be charged against against them what is clear is Paul is not going to hold it against them himself contrast that with Alexander and Demas there does not at least at this time seem to be forgiveness in Paul's hearts towards them it's not that he wouldn't forgive them it's that he has not forgiven them at this point what's the difference repentance we talked about this last week the Christian life is a life of repentance it has to be it would seem that Demas and Alexander have offered no repentance, no remorse, or anything they have done, at least at this point. But in some way or another, these other men and women who Paul names here, that were not at his trial, have been forgiven and restored back to being family. Paul isn't going to hold on to it, put it in his back pocket, and hope, well, if they, if they bring up trial one day, I'm going to be like, oh, the trial, huh? You want to be? You want to talk about a trial? What about that trial 15 years ago? That I, well, he probably ain't gonna live that much longer. But you get what I'm saying? Like, he's not bringing it up. May it not be charged against them. This is difficult for every person in this room because we've all been wrong. This week was. Uh, easily the toughest event I've had to go through at Hope House. It's not even close. I was there by myself, which that wouldn't have made it any better. I would have had some help, but whatever. I can't go into detail. I would weep if I did anyway, but I can't anyway. And I hesitated to even tell this story for a few reasons. But it was bad. It was really bad. 
It was really sad. I cried for two days. Not straight. Just off and on, I'd think about it. I'd be riding in my car, listening to a thong, or riding in my car, listening to nothing, and just start crying. It was, it was hurtful. I didn't sleep much. And part of it that was so hard is I, I was, and it, not that I'm owed anything, but I, w- I was severely wronged by someone that I care about, t- t- still care about even right now. Would have considered him a true friend. Severely wronged. It carried over into evolving verbal threats to me. Physical verbal threats to me. To my son who I was holding at the time. Now is he going to remember that? No, thank goodness. I'll never forget it. Threatening me, threatening others, threatening their sons. Or my son. The next day, I was able to speak to this person face to face. He was broken. He was crying himself. He was remorseful. He was apologetic. He didn't remember saying any of those things. You can imagine why. He didn't remember acting that way for hours. This was not a three-minute, whoops, I lost my mind. Cops were called. And the next day, during his apologetic stance towards me, it was just me and him talking, he was saying things like, how could I even ask you to forgive me? How could I redeem myself from this? How could I ask you to forgive me when I wronged you, but I I disrespected your son, which was true. And this is not to pat me on the back. This is God's sovereignty at work at its finest because I've been thinking about this text all week when that happened I've been rummaging through this text all week when this happened it was at the forefront of my mind and I looked at him and I said well I still love you and I forgive you not because you deserve it but because God has a son And I've disrespected him more times than I can count. And he keeps bringing me back and bringing me back and forgiving me and loving me. We were able to hug. We were able to tell each other we loved each other in Christ. This did not lessen the pain I felt and feel even now talking about it. I don't know if my face is red, but it feels like it is. (laughs) My ears are burning. Didn't mean I'll ever forget it. I literally can't. I will never forget that day. It doesn't mean I'm saying, no big deal, dude. You're drunk. No, I'm saying to him, I am pouring out what has been poured into me by God himself. Because that's the only hope that either of us have. For the sake of the gospel message, because if it were just for me, we probably would have been rolling around on the ground dirty. I don't know who would have won. Probably him. There are 24 other men at Hope House right now watching this play out, who watched it play out that night and are watching it even when we get back to work tomorrow. What does it say to them if the man who preaches the gospel to them on a daily basis cannot live out in real time any better than they can? 
what message does it send about forgiveness of the Savior we preach if our forgiveness is only given with conditions and stipulations? And, well, if you do it again. On the contrary, what picture does it paint of our true and better friend, our true and better Savior, when we forgive genuinely, immediately, without condition, because, not because we're good people. I'm not. Especially when these kinds of things happen involving my kids. But because the gospel tells us or compels us to do so. Because in reverse, I'm that person cursing at God, spitting at him, yelling at him and his son. We must be people of forgiveness in order to show the abundance of God's forgiveness through Christ. And we're told to do so. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Jesus, teaching people how to pray. What does he say? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right after that prayer, so he tells them how to pray, right? Right after that prayer, anybody know what he says there? not praying anymore he's just warning for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you cool sounds awesome but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses that's another text just like last week you don't need a biblical scholar to tell you what that means we have a promise and a warning does this mean if you hold a grudge and refuse to forgive someone that God will refuse you forgiveness for eternity not giving a blanket answer to that but I'd say, why risk it? I would want you to ask yourself a heartfelt question about the forgiveness you claim to have received if you were unwilling to turn that around and give it to someone else. Oh, I've received the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. Do you forgive that person? Heck no. The question then becomes, did you really receive the mercy and forgiveness of our Lord? Because if we do, then we extend that to others. Which leads us to our fifth and final takeaway. Stand firm in the Lord. The true friend, the true Savior. In stark contrast to the fickle friends who, for one reason or other, were not at his first defense, we see Paul tell them why it was okay they weren't there. The Lord was with him. This is where Paul knows his strength comes from anyway. Read all of his writings. He takes zero credit for anything he does. Now, would it have been nice for his friends to be there? Absolutely. Or he wouldn't have brought it up. But Paul knows that it must be the Lord standing with him to truly be strengthened enough to finish what God has called him to do. Paul states here that God strengthened him for a specific purpose. What was that purpose in the text? So that, always important words in scripture, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul is truly finishing his race even after all he has seen and been through. See, Rome was the epicenter of Gentile, of the Gentile people, of Gentile life. All the nations kind of revolved around Rome at that time. The Gentile nations. He's standing before a tribunal of people who literally hold his life in his hands based on what he preaches and what he believes. And instead of hedging his bets, he doubles down and shares the gospel with them. 
Hey, you're on trial for what you believe. What do you believe? That, that, that thing you just said I was on trial for. He boldly proclaims the gospel. This harkens us back to Acts 26. We're not going to go there. But Paul is again on trial. He's given a chance to speak. He takes the opportunity, as he always does, to proclaim the gospel. And in verse 17, as he is telling of his own conversion, Jesus, is, Jesus has miraculously saved me on the Damascus Road. I was going to persecute these people, and Jesus saved me. And he says, Jesus himself has sent me to the Gentiles. Now, how can Paul be mad now that Jesus has brought him to the Gentiles? And how can he hedge his bets now or shy away from what God has specifically called him to do now that he's standing in front of the most powerful Gentiles in the world. And he calls them to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus for their own salvation. Living in America, we do not see the audacity of these moments. There is no analogy. I don't even have one on my paper. Like There are no analogies for this. To be that audacious, to be in front of the most powerful people on the planet who literally hold your life in the balance over what you are preaching and then you preach that very thing to them and say, you need it too. Because they're going to be like, I don't know what you think we need. We got everything here. We're the most powerful people in the most powerful place that this world has ever seen at that point. Why was Paul so bold? He tells us in today's text, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. That's not true if you look at it in an earthly sense, is it? He's about to die. He knows he's about to die, and he especially knows he's about to die now that they've said, we're going to kill you if you don't (laughs) recant, and he didn't recant. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul was living out his life's work. He's being unashamed of the gospel like he wrote in Romans 1.16. He is ready to preach in season and out of season or when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. I would say when your life hangs in the balance, that's not convenient. And yet he is preaching just like we saw earlier in chapter 4. In season and out of season. He believes that what he claims... To be even in the darkest moments, he claims, or he believes, that God is going to eternally save him, and that's all that matters. My life is but a mist. God is going to eternally save me. We must ask ourselves, I must ask myself, do I believe like this? Even when my life is not technically hanging in the balance, do I believe like this? Paul knew he wasn't going to escape his prison sentence. But at the end of his life, what was truly on his mind, what consumed his thoughts, wasn't regrets. It wasn't, what if I had done this? Or, man, I could have gone here, done this. I said earlier I did not know what was on these uh, parchments that he asked for. And I don't. No one does. But I would like to imagine it was Psalm 22. The very same psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Just listen to these words as we consider the things Paul has said here in 2 Timothy. From Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul felt forsaken by every friend he had ever made. No one stood by me. There is no one here with me in my time of need. Verse 11 of Psalm 22. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. I'd say Paul was in trouble. His life hung in the balance based on this trial, and no one was there. They had all deserted him. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Written in Old Testament times, all the nations are who? 
Starts with a G, ends with Gentiles. The Gentiles. Who is Paul talking to here? The epicenter of Gentile life. The most powerful Gentiles the world had ever seen up to that point. Paul is preaching to them. So all the Gentiles might hear this. Verse 28 of Psalm 22. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. Paul finishes by saying to him be glory forever and ever and ever. And then verse 31 of Psalm 22. This is so beautiful. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Any of y'all been born when Psalm was written? Psalms was written? Who is he talking about? This is us. We are these unborn people proclaiming the name of Jesus to this day because what Paul did here on this day, Paul had a true and abiding faith in Christ. No matter what came, what went, what befell him, he lived a life with eternity in mind. This is just what we talked about last week. But not just his own eternity. I'm good. I'm saved. I'm good. But the eternity of a coming generation and a people yet unborn the question is is will we pick up his mantle and continue to live life now in 2019 with eternity in our minds and not just our own we must remember just as Paul never forgot that it is only by the strength given us by Jesus himself that we are able to carry these things out Going back through the key takeaways of today. We are reconciled to God and others only through the shed blood of Jesus because he is our reconciliation. We continue to learn and be discipled by any means necessary. If it takes an 834 mile trip to bring you your stuff, make it. Go on the trip. If that's what it takes to learn about Jesus, make the trek. By any means necessary because Jesus is unsearchable. And he is worthy to be continued, to be studied, to be learned, to be known, to be worshipped. We enjoy Christian fellowship, not because we have so much in common. Some of y'all don't even like. Shouldn't have said that. Some of y'all don't even like the things y'all like. Let's put it that way. Is that better? We don't have much in common. We hang out and it's like, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about and you don't know what I'm talking about. And yet, we can hang out. We can be family. True family why because nothing else matters everything else is secondary to the commonality we have in Christ in his salvation his blood has made us a family we forgive others simply put because Christ has forgiven us he is our forgiveness it is found in no one else but Jesus it is all about Jesus it will always be all about Jesus it will never be about anything but Jesus and we must, by our words and our actions, proclaim this gospel message boldly so that the coming generations will hear it. And I don't mean your kids only. People not even born yet. People not even pregnant yet. People, grandkids upon grandkids away. We must proclaim this message so they get to hear it with eternity in our minds. Why? Because to him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.